Well, friends, I want to invite you to turn over to Acts chapter 8. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be, we're going to be there tonight, uh, forging ahead in our, in our series through this great book. I also, as you're flipping over there, want to take this moment to, uh, to give you a little bit of a preview of another preaching series that's coming your way, coming to a pulpit near you in just a few weeks' time. So uh, we are in Acts. We're going to continue on through Acts to the very end of this book, but We've made a decision in recent weeks about the, about the, the months starting, starting in September and carrying us through the end of the year to go away from, for a time, this series in Acts and to do another series that will hopefully feed into and help us to understand and better appreciate what we're studying in Acts, but that will be a little better suited to the time we have available in these shortened gatherings. So the way that Acts breaks down, when we get through chapter 9, and the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles, and lots of missionary journeys start happening, the stories, the, 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 the texts that go together get longer and longer, sometimes up to a couple of chapters, really, if you want to maintain the unit as it's meant to be read. And we're just facing a reality that with only about a half an hour each week to spend in God's Word together, it's going to be very difficult to do justice to those texts in that amount of time. So we've decided to, to press pause on the series when it reaches that natural break point at the end of chapter 9 when the gospel is about to move from Jewish areas to Gentile ones. Press pause on the series in Acts and to do a series for a few months in Luke's gospel, specifically on the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Because written by the same guy that wrote Acts about the same subject, the kingdom of God. Though there we get the kingdom described for us by Jesus, and here in Acts we get that kingdom spreading around the world. So these texts are typically shorter, they're easier to stand on their own, and they'll, they'll be expandable to cover the amount of time we think we'll need until we're able to spend more time here together, as we usually do in, in our corporate gatherings, and can return to Acts. So you've got that to look forward to starting in September, though we'll be in Acts through the rest of this month. Now, hopefully you've found Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Acts 8, 26 through 40 this evening. Last year, uh, there were a couple really interesting studies that were published related to the practice of evangelism by Christians who regularly attend church. Uh, one of them was by Lifeway Research, right here, our own hometown research organization, which put out that, that their findings that more than half of American Protestants had not shared their faith with somebody else hadn't explained, in other words, how to become a Christian with anybody in the previous six months. Same year, another study, this one by the Barna Group, it was maybe even more interesting. This study found that roughly half of millennial Christians, raise your hand out there if you think of yourself as a millennial. How many of you guys are millennials? About half of this group. So if, you know, if the survey results hold, about half of you guys, hopefully not, believe that it's wrong to share your faith with somebody else. Presumably because it would be imposing their own views on someone else. The study didn't elaborate on what the sort of heart motive or, or idea they have about evangelism, but that was a staggering finding to me. Over half of, roughly half of millennial Christians, they found, believe that it would be wrong of them to share their faith with somebody else. I wonder where you would have fallen in those two surveys. When's the last time you've had an opportunity to tell somebody how to become a Christian? And do you feel, I'm here, I'm, going to ask you to, I'm here I'm going to ask you to think about your gut level reaction, not necessarily what you'd stand by, but do you feel at a gut level, 
if not consciously, that it'd be wrong if you were to talk about Jesus to somebody? Now, friends, I realize there is a risk in raising questions like these because let's say you're in that camp that maybe hasn't shared your faith in the last six months with anyone. I realize that a question like this one probably lands on you like a huge weight that you may not be able to stand up under. Maybe you can't even remember the last time you talked to anybody about Jesus who didn't already believe in him. Or maybe you've got somebody you know you should talk to about Jesus, but you're afraid it'll make things weird or you won't know what to say or you might get a question you can't answer or whatever else. The the, the risk of raising questions like these is that your main response to them, it may be guilt. And with that guilt, a kind of suffocating defeatism. And that, friend, is not what I want for you from this passage today. And it isn't what Jesus wants for you. And it isn't what you should be feeling when you walk away from our time together this afternoon. Just the opposite, in fact. If you've not been able to share your faith or willing to share your faith with anyone recently, what I believe is that through this story, you'll get perhaps a new energy to take the next opportunity that you have because you realize it isn't more than you can handle. And if, at least at a gut level, you feel like it might be wrong for you to impose Jesus on somebody else, and I hope today from the story you'll see that there is an urgency in play here that will push you, if you see it, beyond that gut level reaction and beyond, friend, even the reaction you might get from someone you speak to about Jesus who will believe you've, you've crossed a line, an urgency that will, that will hopefully land on you with a weight that will convince you apart from the kind of witness that you're hesitant to give, no one could become a Christian. These stories that we're going to, or this, rather the one story we're going to look at this afternoon is a story that combines optimism about what's possible with urgency about what's necessary and drives every single one of us to evangelism as a basic bedrock Christian responsibility. Now, this story that we're going to look at tonight is, is the first story in Acts about personal evangelism. We've seen evangelism happening already. We've seen these mass gatherings where the apostles and others like them stand in front of crowds and preach about Jesus and get this incredible response. Here's the first time, though, that we get to see a single encounter, a kind of zoomed-in day in the life for Philip, same figure that we tracked with last week, and a specific person interested in following Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, there are plenty of things about this encounter that we shouldn't expect to be normal. There's a message that Philip gets from the angel of the Lord. That's never happened to me. There's an orchestrated meetup at just the moment when someone is reading a prophecy about Jesus to himself. There's what seems like an immediate baptism of someone who's then sent on his way to fend for himself in a new place with no Christians, just turned loose into the world. And there's a supernatural transportation of somebody by the Spirit, from one place to another. In other words, a lot of things that really aren't reproduced elsewhere in the New Testament and that have not been reproduced in my experience, I don't know about yours, but despite all of that, just as we've been seeing all along in Acts, despite all of that, through it all, we also see the basics of personal evangelism. We see the elements that always belong in conversations about Jesus with those who don't yet believe. 
And we get the perspective that we need to take up this work for ourselves. I want to highlight both the perspective and the practical help that we can gain from this story. And perhaps the most important thing about this story, and the main thing I want you taking away from it, is the importance of knowing the difference between God's role and ours. You confuse the difference between God's role in evangelism and your role in evangelism. Well, there are going to be any number of problems that are going to come from that. Some of them we'll talk about today. But if you recognize the difference between God's responsibility, God's role in evangelism, and yours, well, then you'll have no reason not to take up the calling that's put in front of you and every reason to take it up with hope and confidence and expectation. I want to talk to you about God's role in personal evangelism and about our role in personal evangelism. Those are the two steps we're going to take today. And I want to begin by reading the story. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, and then read all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to show you God's role in evangelism from this story and our role in evangelism from this story. And I'm going to do so using a lot of subpoints that begin with the letter P. I apologize in advance, but once the P's just started rolling, I couldn't resist it. And then once you get so far in, at some point you just have to commit. And so there's a lot of P's headed your way, starting with these three that help us to see God's role in personal evangelism. Here's the first one. God plans the encounter. 
Did you guys see that? It's all over this story. The sovereignty of God has already been a huge theme in Acts. We've been tracking with it. Every place we see it, try to bring it to the surface. Especially last week, it was the main theme in the stories last week. And Luke still has it on his mind in choosing to tell this story and choosing to tell it the way that he does. Just look at how the story begins with a messenger from the Lord telling Philip exactly where to go. No question here who's in charge of the situation. As if that weren't enough to show whose plan is working out, he tells him to go somewhere Philip would never have chosen to go if what Philip were doing was kind of making careful plans and doing demographic research and trying to maximize his impact. He would not have gone here. Now, Philip was already in a place where there's lots of fruitful ministry happening. People are coming to faith in droves. You know, he's got them all around him, we were told last week. And now all of a sudden, he's told to go to this road that leads from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And don't think when you think about this road, like a street preacher on a busy corner, you know, like Hillsborough Road pre-COVID. Somebody stationed out there with a sign screaming at anybody who comes past. That's not the situation. No, just to make the point clear, Luke actually drops in his little note. This is a desert place. So the Spirit is sending Philip somewhere he would have never gone for a gospel opportunity if he were the one in charge of this situation. And there shouldn't be, though there shouldn't be anyone on this road, when he gets there, here comes an Ethiopian official, a member of the queen's court, reading to himself from the Bible. And as if that weren't enough to seal the deal that, that the Lord is in charge of all of this, the Spirit actually, verse 29, says to Philip, go over and join the chariot. This is the one I want you to talk to. And friends, these details are all put here on purpose. They're, they're trying to paint a picture for us. They're trying to make it really, really clear that the Lord has a role in this evangelistic encounter. Now, what, 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 what's fleshed out for us through the rest of the Scriptures it's indicated in these little details I've been trying to pull to the surface for you in this story, but it's fleshed out elsewhere. Is that, is that even though we may not always see all the visible signs that Luke puts right here into this story, God is always at work. He has a people that he intends to save. When he promises that there will be people worshiping him from every tribe and tongue and nation, it's not an aspiration that he has. It's a plan that will be. And, and to make that promise, for it to have any meaning at all, he has to know who he's going to save and have figured out how he's going to save them. He is always active. And yes, we're responsible. We're about to talk about that. But we, what, we do what we do. We take up our role under the blessed sovereignty of God, who is a director who knows exactly what he's doing in and through our evangelism. Friends, that's going to be real important to remember here in just a minute. God plans the encounter. God also prepares the hearer. That's the next thing that we see in this story. When, when Philip finds this guy on this desert road, he doesn't really have to work him over to make him interested in what's going on. This isn't some sort of apologetic situation where he's got himself a, a die-in-the-wool atheist and he's got to convince him to even give him a, hear him, a hearing. No, no, no. This guy, is, he's already reading a passage from Scripture that's, that's tailored to show him who Jesus is. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, which we read in total earlier on in our service. It's a passage that describes what's known as the suffering servant. And he admits he doesn't understand it. 
But clearly, he's already open to it. He's, he's seeking. He, he wants to understand. And this is another thing fleshed out elsewhere in the New Testament. Another role that God plays in evangelism. He works on people at the level of their heart to prepare them for the word that his people will bring to them. He speaks not just to the mind, communicating information, but to the heart, communicating desire. In other words, he stirs in people to prepare them to want what the gospel offers. That's his work. He's doing it right here. He does it still today. And here's the third P. So God plans the encounter. We've seen that. It's God's role to prepare the hearer. We've seen that. It's also God's role to produce the fruit. I suppose this one's really closely related to that second one, the prep that he does in people. But it's important to see that that God brings conversion through his word to do what he's already said he would do, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That God is the one bringing this man to faith rather than Philip's skill or pluck or hustle is, is woven into how the story is told. Many of the details we've already pulled to the surface. But, but what's, what's here is brought right to the surface in other parts of the Bible. Here's one I just want to read to you because I think it's so relevant to the story that we're seeing play out in this chapter. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, writing to a church that was in some sort of a tussle over, over these different personalities that had brought the gospel to them, that were teaching them, kind of lining up under which one they preferred that sort of served their own individual brand the best. And they were saying things like, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, as if that's what it was all about. Paul writes to them and reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that God's the one who's really doing this work. Listen to what he says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's the one that brings this man through Philip's testimony to the point where he wants to commit to Jesus, where he's seeing water in this desert place, wants to go all in right away. And he's the one who will produce fruit through this man, presumably, and through so many others in Acts, wherever this gospel goes. Why did I belabor this point? Friends, you need to know that before you ever take up your role in evangelism, God has a role too. And his, his role matters even more than yours. He's always at work. He's at work in ways we'll never, ever recognize. And he's bringing the gospel through his people, through you, to those that he's already prepared, then producing fruit that we could never hope to produce for ourselves. So for whatever reason, you may feel hesitant to get into the game, to take up the opportunities that you've seen around you. I guarantee you that knowing more clearly what God's role is will make you more willing to take up that opportunity anyway. When we see what God's doing to bring people to faith through his word, it gives us hope to take up our role in bringing his word to them. And it protects us from pulling his load over onto our shoulders and getting crushed by it. And it protects us from seeing our own limitations and being crushed by them so that we never do anything. There's a lot of ways 
to have the zest taken out of your evangelism. But chances are you're looking at your own limitations or you're looking at the scale of this work and carrying more of it than he's meant for you to carry. So that's God's role in our evangelism. Now I want to talk about our role. It's not the same as his, but it's a crucial role that you have in front of you and, ha- and for which you have everything you need already. Here's three more Ps. It's our role in personal evangelism to pray. Prayer is role number one. Friends, if it's true that God is sovereign over our evangelism, then that means the first step for each of us has got to be to ask him for his help. If, if he's already at work and all of it really depends on him, if we're to have any hope of success, then praying to him is not just a tack on, it's the foundation. It's the starting point. We have to ask him to do what he does, what we can't possibly do. Now, I get that there's no explicit reference in this story to prayer. I realize that. But if we were to broaden our scope out a little bit, if we were to, say, step back a couple chapters in this story to Acts chapter 4, well, then we'd be in this scene where the apostles have been preaching about Jesus. They've been arrested, and then they've been warned not to keep on preaching about him anymore, to sort of shut it down right here, keep it to yourself. And as soon as they're turned loose, they go back to their friends, and all of them gather in prayer. Do you remember what they prayed for? Acts 4.29. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see the prayer? Give us boldness to speak. We'll speak, you act. Just keep it up. And right here in this story, that prayer gets answered. I wonder if your prayer life includes prayers like this one. Friends, do you pray for opportunities? Maybe even opportunities to speak to specific people that you know need Jesus. Do you ask God to give you boldness for yourself? Do you pray regularly for people around the world who don't have access to the gospel? It's really easy to do and a wonderful opportunity. There are websites like imd.org that will give you all the information you could possibly want on peoples that, that currently don't have gospel access and won't until we, through prayer and, and, and action and faithfulness to God, take the gospel there. I wonder also, do you pray not just for opportunities for yourself or, or boldness for yourself, but do, do you pray for opportunities for others in our church to evangelize those who need Jesus. Maybe friends in your small group, maybe our international workers who have gone out from us into places without much gospel access. See, your role in evangelism is is even bigger than your own evangelistic conversations. It starts with prayer. And part of of what it is to belong to a local church is is to commit to pray for the work, not just that God has called you to, but the work that your friends have been called to, to ask God to give them everything that they need for that work. Our commitment, in other words, to prayer, and specifically to prayer over evangelism, comes straight out of our dependence on God's power to save. So your role begins right here, and you can take it up today, and and, and we need you to. We don't have any hope apart from what he alone can give. We need you praying for our work to evangelize. Prayer, that's the first part of your role. 
The second part of your role in personal evangelism that, that comes through in this story is preparation. We talked about God preparing the hearers. I now want to talk about our role of preparing ourselves for evangelism. If it's true that God uses the gospel or his word about Jesus to save people, then our job is to get ready to explain that gospel. He's chosen to bring people to himself through other people. It only ever happens that way. When someone takes the news about Jesus and who he is to somebody who doesn't have it yet or doesn't believe it yet. Even here, when God has clearly got at his disposal angelic messengers and his spirit who transports people here and there, not to mention the sorts of dreams and visions that he gives elsewhere in the book of Acts, when he's got all of those things at his disposal, look what it takes for a message to come to this Ethiopian man. Philip has to open his mouth and tell him the good news about Jesus, verse 35. He had the scripture already. He needed to be shown Jesus in this prophecy. So now let me connect some dots for you. Starting with this encounter and working back from it, Philip was clearly ready for this. When, he's, when, he's, when he comes to this guy who's wanting to know what this prophecy is really all about, we're told in verse 35 that he takes it up, beginning with this very scripture, and tells him the good news about Jesus. He's able to work from here through the scriptures up to Christ. How was he able to do that? Well, maybe you remember back in Acts chapter 2 in this description of the earliest Christians and their churches, what they were doing. So day by day, they're gathering together in each other's homes and at the temple, devoting themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching. Philip was one of these early Christians who'd been gobbling up everything the apostles were teaching. And what did the apostles have to teach them? Presumably, they taught them what they themselves had learned from Jesus. Acts 1.3 says, he, Jesus, presented himself to them, the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the apostles are only passing on what Jesus had already passed on to them. So what exactly did Jesus teach them? Rewind a little bit more. You'll find yourself in Luke's first volume. Not Acts, but Luke's gospel. Near the very end, chapter 24, where Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, finds himself on a dusty old road, a lot like this one, with a couple of people who don't really get it yet. And we're told there in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see this chain? Jesus teaches his disciples. His disciples teach all these new Christians. Philip devoted himself to their teaching so that he'd be ready when he met this Ethiopian, to show how Isaiah 53 was really about Christ. Put it all together, and I think what we can learn from Philip's example is this. We got to prepare to share with others what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And what specifically, what specifically we got to be ready to account for is what the Bible has to say about Jesus as our substitute before God. Isaiah 53 is not a, a random passage here. We read the whole thing earlier. Twelve different times in that chapter, there is refer, the, the, the prophet refers to a substitution where Jesus takes on himself something that we otherwise would have had to bear. He carries our sorrows. He bears our iniquities. 
Our iniquities are laid on him and he's bruised for our transgressions. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. There's the reversal all through that chapter. Over and over and over it happens. So what, what we need to be ready to explain to people, what you may need to hear today, friend, for the first time, is that Jesus isn't who you may think that he is. And this religion, what it means to follow him, is not what you may have come to expect from religion. Your default mode is likely, I obey, therefore, I'll have a place here. God expects me to perform, and I'll get what I can pay for. That's a default mode that comes in all of us, and it's reinforced all around us. And it's directly contradicted by the picture of Jesus in Isaiah 53. Now, in this picture, he gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. There is a forgiveness and redemption available to anyone who will trust in it, not because you changed your ways, but because he became like you and took what you deserved. We gotta be ready, friends, as evangelists to show how Jesus is the key to all of the scriptures because without knowing that, there's even stuff in the Bible that could be read to, to kind of affirm our default mode, that, that the Bible's really just another pattern of living that will lead you to a new and better kind of life or open God's hand and, and, and start flowing the blessings you hope to gain. That's a default mode that can be found in the Bible if you read it out of context. We got to prepare to see Jesus in all of it and specifically to see him and his offer of forgiveness through his sacrifice. Now, I want to conclude here by a really important, with a really important qualification to everything I just said about preparation. Because I know you may be hearing, okay, so I've got to master how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. I've got to be an expert on how to read laws and prophecies in a way that points to Christ. And that, that's hard to do, and I can't. And so, therefore, evangelism must be for somebody else. And I want to, if, if you're thinking that, I want to just say, no, 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 that's not it either. You'll prepare the rest of your life and you will die not being as good an evangelist as you hope to be, not being as prepared as you'd like to be. And by all means, give it everything you've got and keep on preparing for the rest of your life. The Bible is that kind of well. You can't ever reach the bottom of it. But you already have everything you need if you have the gospel because God's spirit is still active. He's still at work. And you may not get transported anywhere or have an audible voice telling you where to go or who to talk to, but you can cultivate right now the same kind of openness and eagerness that Philip had. You can have, in other words, a posture like Philip's. And that'll mean expecting. That'll mean going through your life expecting to have opportunities to tell somebody about Jesus because you expect God is bringing them to you. You expect that's what he wants. He's in this with you and for you. He will use you. A big role for God's sovereignty. Sometimes folks think that that shuts down evangelistic urgency and effectiveness as if, well, if he's got it anyway, then maybe that takes the pressure off me. Friend, I think it's just the opposite. When we know he's at work, we have the energy and the hope to step into a work that we know is too big for us and to expect that he's gonna, he's gonna set us up for success. So we'll go through with a posture of expectation, looking for a conviction on the heart. Because even though the Spirit may not speak to you in words that you can hear, like he did to Philip, 
even though it's not up to you to decipher some sort of special code that he's hoping won't slip by you and know when the moment's right, if he's still active, and if we should expect him to bring us opportunities, then we should also expect that he's still doing work inside of us to clarify and confirm the word outside of us that calls us to evangelism. So look, not just around you for opportunities, but but even within yourself for conviction that you should speak to somebody about Jesus. It may be that that's how he'll lead you. And why not? The downside is low. The upside is high. The command to do it is there. And when you live with the expectation that God's going to set you up, sometimes you'll feel that pull. And this story right here is put here in part so that when you feel it, you'll go for it. And trust that he goes with you. I want to pray now that God will help us to be faithful to the model he's given us here. Father, we know that if it is up to us, that our evangelism will always be lacking, both in urgency and effectiveness and power, frequency. And we know that, that even, even more importantly, we know that you have not left us to ourselves that your spirit is in us and with us and for us, equipping us for every good work, that you are active, preparing people for yourself to receive this gospel with joy and hope. And we pray only that you would help us to be faithful to our role in evangelism while we trust your role to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.